This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal-Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Matt Galway to talk about his new book, The Emergence of Global Maoism, China's Red Evangelism and the Cambodian Communist Movement, 1949 to 1979. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Matt, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, Great to be here, Sarah. Thank you so much. Of course. So why don't we begin at the beginning with your beginning? So how did you come to work on China and modern China in particular? Well, well, thank you for the question, Sarah. It's a great one to start off with because uh, my journey to this topic has always been a winding road. I began my undergraduate studies with a, with a dread fascination in, in the, the Aztecs in particular. And studying in, at the University of Ottawa in the early 2000s, uh, not the place that you would study the Mexica, not the place where you would learn and study Nahuatl. So I found myself kind of without a place to go with this topic, unless I was, of course, going to move uh, overseas, and I did not have the finances to do so. And I took a couple of classes on Soviet history, and there was a class actually on, on Mao's China. I, I remember it was uh, taught by Dmitry Kitsikis, who uh, taught at the University of Ottawa for many years. And I just found his, his fascinating like life story of, of you know, a person who actually had met uh, Chairman Mao and, 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 and the way that he taught the class about this great underdog story whether it was the CCP from 1927 uh, reemerging in, in the in the kind of China Southwest, establishing the Jiangxi Soviet, and then again having to regroup after its failure and then relocate after, during the long march to the north, China's north. Uh, I always found that a very fascinating story. And I just, you know, the, the horrors of the Mao years uh, greatly forward in the Cultural Revolution notwithstanding, I just found it a very, a very interesting uh, story of lives, of perseverance, and a good underdog story, one that, of course, Edgar Snow uh, talked about extensively in his stuff. So I think that's what got me interested in Maoist China in particular, and got me interested in the CCP. And then I found myself kind of, again, looking at the various different manifestations of communist parties overseas, and Cambodia just sort of turned turned up as one that I thought was uh, equal, equal parts horrifying and fascinating is this is how did this how did these ideas manifest from China in in the Cambodian sociocultural milieu and I always wanted to undercover or uncover how that happened why that happened and how did it go so horribly horribly wrong fabulous thank you for that and I, I noticed that you know the the thinking of Aztec Soviet modern China um, all different kinds of historians focusing on different things. But one thing, of course, that we all have in common is writing. And I was hoping to start here 
um, even though it is customary to begin the podcast by talking about the chapters of the book itself. Uh, but I wanted here to back up and actually start with the acknowledgments, uh, because I personally love acknowledgments and I loved reading yours um, because you end it with a quotation from Stephen King. And I'll just read it um, because I thought it was fabulous. Um, Writers are made, not born or created out of dreams or childhood trauma, that becoming a writer or a painter, actor, director, dancer, and so on is a direct result of conscious will. Of course, there has to be some talent involved, but talent is a dreadfully cheap commodity, cheaper than table salt. What separates the talented individual from the successful one is a lot of hard work and study, a constant process of honing. So I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about this. What does this sort of mean to you and why did you decide to include it in your acknowledgements? Well, that's a great question, Sarah. Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed reading the acknowledgements and I'm, I'm glad that you appreciate acknowledgements because I'm, I'm horrible at writing them. And <laughs> it, it probably took me more time than one of these chapters to, to get it all done and make sure that all the names uh, were, were part of that, that list because you know it takes a village to do any kind of research project. Um, I think the reason why this particular quote resonated with me is, is because I don't consider myself an especially brilliant writer. I don't consider myself a, a particularly uh, talented, uh, a, you know, individual. You know, I, I came to, to studying sinology rather late compared to many of my colleagues in the field. I, I, you know, like I was mentioning, I kind of had a, a winding road from, from my initial interest in history, looking at kind of pre-Columbian Central America, uh, that shifted to the Soviet Union, shifted to China, and then it shifted to Cambodia. And then I came, kind of came back to China as a, as a general interest, just again, really fascinated in the life and, and ideas of, of Mao Zedong. So, but this all takes time. And, and by the time I had done that, I had realized that many of my colleagues had already become fluent in Chinese, had spent years living and working in China, and I had only been there for a few months here and there. So when I started the PhD, I was always playing catch up. I was always trying to make sure that, you know, I, I, I was enrolled in the right uh, language program intensive, that I, I did my, my, my year and a bit abroad, uh, you know, just to kind of pick up where I left off in undergrad learning Chinese, uh, to make sure that I'd read absolutely everything by the industry leading scholars of Mao's China and the history of Maoist China. And it was always playing catch up. So I kind of felt to myself that, you know, hard work uh, will always be kind of the benchmark. And that if I just put myself at my desk longer than my colleagues, if I, if I put in those extra hours, if I put in that extra time, that eventually the product would, uh, would, would be something I could be proud of and that's something that my peers could respect. And I think that this is where Stephen King is kind of going with it is, is you have the talented individual, but hard work is what's going to differentiate uh, between the, the person who kind of rests on their laurels or the person who, who, who can get by with talent alone versus this, the person who, who, who doesn't necessarily see themselves as having that same level of talent. Maybe they, maybe they have it, but that, that constant feel that they need to work harder than those around them uh, will push them over the edge. And it certainly helped me with the dissertation and it certainly helped me with all the, 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 the hurdles that I had to clear in doing research in China, in Shanghai and in Xiamen, and then also doing research in Cambodia, which has its challenges as well. So I think that's what resonated most with me. And, and look, writing is also an act of reading Another kind of uh, paraphrasing Stephen King from his work on writing. Uh, that, you know, I just read extensively. I found myself reading uh, works going all the way back to, you know, your Benjamin Schwartz's and your Stuart Schramm's, uh, and then reading up to their graduate students, your, 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 um, uh, your Nick Knight's and his kind of more firebrand take on, on what um, Marxism is uh, per Mao and what Mao's Marxism is. 
And I think that helped me kind of find my own authorial voice and where I wanted to stand on the debate of, of, of Mao Zedong thought, Mao Zedong Sisyang, and how it travels in particular, and how these ideas kind of find currency outside of their original place of origin. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all of what you said really resonates with me. So thank you for that. Thank you for writing it. Uh, but thank you for summarizing it so beautifully. And you, as you were speaking there, you know, talking about Maoism, Mao Zedong thought and travel, you are, of course, moving us within the book, um, which is where we will go next. Um, so this is, of course, as the title of your book indicates, a study of global Maoism or what happens to Mao Zedong thought once it travels outside of China. And as you've sort of hinted at here, your case study is Cambodia. And as you say in the introduction, um, this, you know, the example of Cambodia is one that um, scholars of China have really glossed over. And I'm wondering if you could sort of situate this and explain this a little bit. Why is it that scholars have not really talked about Cambodia? Where does Cambodia fit within the history of global Maoism? Well, thank you for the question, Sarah. It's, it's, a, it's a, another great one, and one that I will do my best to, to answer as succinctly as, and comprehensively as possible. It's actually quite fascinating because I feel that even Cambodia scholars have neglected this as well. Uh, for years and years and years, I remember uh, as an undergraduate reading you know, about what the, the Khmer Rouge, what the Communist Party of Kampuchea did, what were their, their ideas, what were their speeches, what was their propaganda. And I was thinking to myself, this is all very starkly similar to what I had read about what was going on in Maoist China from, from the mid 1950s all the way up until its end in 76. And I just kind of think to myself, okay, well, obviously there's some connectivity there. There is mention of China. There's mention of, of, of uh, Communist Party of Kampuchea members visiting China. And there's a fair amount of, of mention of China in speeches and in the, in the, um, in, in the official uh, party center documents. What's going on here? And I noticed that in a lot of work on global Maoism, there's been a lot of, uh, specifically on, on Mao's ideas outside of China. I think of critical perspectives on Mao Zedong's thought by um, Arif Derlik, uh, Paul Healy, and Nick Knight. Uh, as well as uh, recent works, you've got uh, works uh, that that uh, have kind of tried to look at Mao's, Maoism's manifestation outside China. The, I think of, of course, um, uh, Alex Cook's edited volume, uh, Mao's Little Red Book, A Global History. They Neither of them touch on Cambodia. It's, it's And I think this is the symptomatic of what the Cambodians uh, were doing as well, which is they don't see that happening in Cambodia. They see the the the, the grotesque kind of ethnocentrism, the, the genocide, you know, the killing based on ethnicity, based on religion, uh, as, as something that is not inherent to Maoism, therefore there cannot be Maoism working on there. And I, this is what I'm trying to do with this book is to show that that Maoism is not a, a monolithic thing. It is it's 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 emphasis on creative adaptation. It's emphasis on um, kind of emancipating from uh, semi-colonial and semi-feudal uh, systems of oppression. And it's emphasis on um, not following a doctrinaire, dogmatic version of an ideology, but actually putting practice first. And then through practice, learning the mistakes and learning the adjustments that you must make to then revise that theory and put it into practice again. That's what makes Maoism so malleable and why it landed in so many different places. And I think that Cambodia, you can, you can kind of see that at work there, right? There's even an effort in, in the, the rhetoric of the CPK, the Communist Party of Kampuchea, uh, the, the super great laid forward, right? Year zero is, is merely a more extreme version of the Cultural Revolution. Get rid of all old society. Everything that happened before no longer exists. We have to start history from now. 
And I think that that is why you kind of see it there and that why maybe Cambodianists and, and Sinologists were, were more hesitant to make those connections. Uh, but my hope is that this book will start that conversation going forward, that more people will see that at work uh, rather than just the, you know, myself and the few names who have, who have kind of made preliminary links, uh, albeit rhetorically and without looking at the Chinese sources. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there are a few things that I think we'll touch on. Um, as they come up in the different chapters. So you mentioned sort of the intellectuals and elites visiting China um, in particular, that's sort of reminding me of some of the things um, to come. But of course, also the, as you mentioned, Maoism not being a monolithic thing, I think that comes through so clearly um, in your book and in part through the sort of the methodology that you use um, in your book, which is so prominent. So as you say in the book, your analysis presents an intellectual and political genealogy of Maoism in China, and then looks at its globalization thereafter. And you do so by using um, a framework of Edward Said's traveling theory. And this theory, it really, it really does play an important role in setting up the chapters. Um, so I'm wondering if you could introduce it for myself and listeners here. What is this theory and how are you using it in the book? Well, thank you, Sarah. It I actually have to give a, a shout out and full credit is due to, to my then supervisor, uh, Dr. Timothy Cheek, who, who introduced this to me and said, you should give this a go. And, you know, at the time I was reading Kenneth Jowett's uh, work, uh, you know, New World Disorder on the, the Leninist uh, extinction. So it just kind of the confluence of these two things happening at once kind of brought me into establishing this framework as something as a launch pad, you know, okay, well, okay, well, ideas travel, we know this, but how do they travel? And Saeed's work, the chapter in his book, The World, the Text and the Critic, highlights three particular uh, processes of ideas traveling. Now, obviously, there's more to it, and I unpack a lot of these in the book, but the ones that this, that my book highlights are, are production, transmission, and reception. So you have the production of an idea or an ideological discourse, or in the case of Maoism, an ideological system. You have its transmission outward, whether that's through the dissemination of the written word or, uh, you know, uh, word of mouth, or as, as the book shows, also personal experience, personal witness. And then you have the reception of those ideas by people who are not, you know, within that initial kind of creative producing milieu. And the thing about the reception stage is I felt to myself, okay, well, let's not look at it passively. There are no passive recipients of Marxism or Marxism-Leninism or, or Mao Zedong thought uh, slash Maoism. You don't have that. It's, it's always an engagement. And I think this is where Philip Kuhn's uh, piece, his, his, his very important origins of the Taiping vision comes in. Because for years I thought, okay, well, the Taiping vision, the, the, the Taiping rebellion, this hellfire and brimstone Christianity, uh, it just kind of happened kind of ex nihilo. But, but that article really kind of showed, it's like, no, there's this initial rejection of the ideas. Then there's this, this vision that uh, Hong Shouquan has where he you know, is, is God's favorite Chinese son and what have you. And then, but how does that make those ideas reach the, the constituents, those, those most uh, enthused and most um, passionate um, Taiping uh, rebels who will who will fight, you know fight tooth and nail for that uh, Taiping Tingua, 
And I think that that is what kind of that connection that Philip King showed brought me to this framework. We're thinking, okay, well, there's the initial reception. There's the attempt to kind of engage with it. There's the initial impact where they relate it to their immediate situation. Okay, so where in receiving, where do the ideas fit? Where do they fit into the situation? How can I apply them? Why does this make sense to me? Then there's the conditions of the reception. What's going on in the background? What are the historical factors that make such an idea palatable? What makes it find currency? And then there's the attempt to adapt it or to apply it. And that's where we get into the adaptation phases, right? There's the intellectual adaptation. There's the practical adaptation, putting it into practice, which will fail. And then there's the going back to the drawing board and applying it to those kind of those holes, filling in those gaps that didn't work. And in this case, those are the, the norms, right? So for the Khmer Rouge, for the Communist Party of Kempechea, uh, that takes on a form of, 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 you know, drawing in allusions to and, and references to Buddhism to try and bring in the overwhelming Buddhist constituency that they were trying to recruit. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and as I sort of said, it does form such an important part of your book and even just in the structure, right? So how, what you just outlined, um, the engagement, the the practice, the, the, the practice with, and then the sort of revision and so on, that is sort of exactly the trajectory we see with the chapters of your book that we will now turn to. So first then um, in chapter one, and this is sort of where you, you track actually the evolution of Mao Zedong thought in China, going back to this idea of Maoism not being a monolith. Here you sort of look at what is happening with um, Marxism traveling to China and how it is turned, transformed, engaged with, and you know, realized as Mao Zedong thought. Um, so this chapter really establishes the kind of Maoism, I suppose, that is coming to Cambodia, which is then engaged with in the mid-1960s. Um, so here, again, holding fast, holding firm to that idea of Maoism not being a monolith, um, keeping that. But what do we need to know about Maoism as it looked in the 1960s? So another way of putting it, what kind of Maoism was exported to Cambodia? What were Cambodian intellectuals engaging with? Well, well thank you again, Sarah. That's a great question. The, the Maoism with which the um, Cambodian intellectual studying in Paris, and, and uh, as I, I talk about it a bit in chapter two, a few Cambodia-based intellectuals, uh, is one that really emphasizes the kind of the high tide of, of Maoism in the mid 1960s. Uh, that uh, this is these are the Cambodia based ones, the ones that the Maoism of the Cultural Revolution. Now, the intellectuals in Paris, however, are this is this is what I find especially fascinating. They're finding works not during that high tide. They're in Paris in the early 1950s. They're reading materials that have been translated from. Uh, Japanese translations uh, or Russian translations of Chinese originals or Japanese translations or Russian translations or what have you, they've been thrice or, or, or four times distilled or translated by the time they get to French versions. And of course, French is the language with which these um, materials are engaged with uh, in, in, in Paris, where these uh, future founders or leaders of the Communist Party of Kampuchea uh, this is this is this is the language of, of of engagement of these materials, and this is the milieu in which they're they're encountering them, and they're receiving translations of texts uh, from Mao's kind of Yan'an canon, right? They're reading about on practice, they're reading about on new democracy, and how these you know how Mao's systematic analysis of the classes in rural society, or 
the, the stages of socialist development or the stages of revolution, uh, what needs to be done to eliminate imperialism or to remove an imperialist invader from society, how to develop a new culture, how to develop a new society that, that gets rid of those strictures and, and, and uh, uh, he doesn't use the word pathogens, but these things that are holding society back from cyclical underdevelopment. I think th these are the pieces that resonate with your, with your Huyuns, your Hunims. These are the future, future ministers within the Communist Party of Kampuchea in the, 19, uh, the, the mid to late 1960s, and, and who, of course, meet their end, as my book talks about, for voicing their, their dissent against uh, the, the radicalism of, of the Pol Pot years. Um, so these pieces, I think, really resonate with these intellectuals in the 50s because it is the Maoism of the Yan'an years, right? It's very, very high on, on looking at um, strict kind of these investigations, how you, how you uh, discern different classes in society, um, why certain classes have it worse than others. And Mao, of course, did these extensive rural investigations uh, on which he would, you know, kind of examine further in, in his most famous pieces. And, and I think that these you know, these students, these, these Parisian uh, Paris-based students who are doing political economy degrees at uh, the University of Paris and its various uh, subsidiary schools, really kind of that, that speaks to them. And they're like, oh, I see that in Cambodia. I see that. And when I do my own investigations on uh, these provinces in the 1950s, the same result is true. We see exploitation. We see uh, the pervasiveness of usury. We see the fragmentation and concentration of lands. Um, the problem is, of course, is that they will make too many connections between China and Cambodia, which are vastly different. And I think that's one of the explanations for why uh, the, these rural investigations uh, yielded yielded some some bad results uh, when they were actually put into practice, which I talk about in in my latter chapters. But I think that's the that's what they're looking at, right? So they're looking at the stuff in the fifties, and when the nineteen sixties come around, many of these leaders will go and visit China, uh, Hunim in particular. And they'll, of course, have the opportunity to engage with more recent stuff because China's actively exporting Mao's ideas through the Little Red Book, through the selected works of Mao Zedong. And it's that kind of high tide radicalism that resonates with Cambodians outside of that Paris group. And uh, you see that in chapter two, where I discuss the, the kind of the, the fascination among progressive intellectuals in Cambodia uh, with China and all these visits by Zhou Enlai and Chen and others. That becomes very kind of this co-celeb of China as the supporter of Cambodian neutrality and this anti-imperialism that's, that's pervasive throughout the region. So I think that's you've got kind of two prongs going on there is, is the, the, the 50s group that's really, you know, looking at the rational bureaucratic aspects of Maoism, the, the kind of political economy of Maoism. And then you have the 1960s where you've got your Paul Potts and your Hunims by that point, who are really interested in the 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 fanfare, the 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 the, the kind of the celebrity Maoism that is all that is very heavy on faith and very heavy on the personal example of Mao. And that's what really kind of captures the minds, the hearts and minds of, of many progressives in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And you, you were talking there of sort of the, the investigations that the, the Paris group, the Paris intellectuals are doing. I just want to mark that um, they are investigations, but also specifically they write dissertations. And we're going to come to this a little in a little bit, but they're sort of, uh, those investigations are sort of realized in print, as it were, or I suppose, um, yeah, in, in dissertation form, which I will ask you to talk about because I love the chapters talking about their dissertations. Uh, but as you were talking about, the China that um, they're engaging with is quite 
active in importing or transmitting Maoism. And this, as you just sort of laid out, takes us to chapter two, which is titled Transmitting Maoism. And it looks at what happened in the years following the Sino-Soviet split when Mao and the CCP are actively exporting the Chinese revolution to the world. Um, so there's a lot in this chapter. You talk about the exportation process, the 1955 Afro-Asian conference. You talk about Pol Pot's 1965-1966 um, um, trip to Beijing, which was fascinating. Um, but you also talk about the conditions that are sort of priming Cambodia and that make it a really fertile ground for Maoism to take root. Um, you know, the aspects of Maoism as an ideology that made it so attractive, which include, just to name a few, peasant inclusion, concrete military strategy, two-stage process for socialist transition, and um, the indigenization of Marxism-Leninism to suit specific historical conditions. So as I said, this, there's a lot in this chapter. It's very rich. Uh, but in thinking about, as you were sort of touching on there already, what is it about Maoism that makes it so sort of attractive? Is there anything that you want to highlight about what is going on in Cambodia at the time that made it so receptive, I suppose? For sure. Yeah, thank you. And so Cambodia in the 1950s, you know, it, it wins independence in 53. After many years as a protectorate, though, as John Tully has described, it was ruled very much with an iron fist, uh, and, and it was if, in effectively a colony uh, in, in, in many respects, the, the way the French treated it. And Cambodians for years and years and years, uh, or Khmer's, the Cambodians as an as a, uh, independence, but Khmer's, the uh, kind of the, the majority ethnic group of, 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 of today's Cambodia, and, and, and uh, Cambodge, as the French called it, uh, we're, we're often the kind of the second or third option when it came to the French uh, filling their colonial administrations. Uh, the, the favorites were the Vietnamese and the ethnic Chinese of the region. And uh, as uh, Penny Edwards has shown in her work, and as you've seen in the works of David Chandler, uh, you know, I stand on the shoulder of giants. Both of them have been a huge influence on my work. Uh, that this creates a kind of a complex, right? This, this sense of, okay, well, the French have a favoritism towards the Vietnamese and the ethnic Chinese. And on top of that, their social scientists are coming in and uh, you know, writing about how our great Angkor, the great temples of Angkor built by the Khmer Empire uh, are kind of emblematic of a civilization that was on par with the Greeks in ancient Egypt, right? So they, this creates the sense, right, of a juxtaposition against this past greatness that the French lionize and 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 play, invest a lot of admiration, right? And almost, uh, I wouldn't even say almost. It was definitely Orientalist fascination in those temples, right? Uncle Wat remains on the flag and has been on every iteration of the Cambodian flag. Um, but it's they juxtapose that against the present state of weakness and that present sense of of inferiority when when kind of measured against their neighbors, right? And uh, as a, you know, you have Thailand or or Siam then, and now Thailand and then Vietnam where the numbers are bigger, uh, the finances are, are, are better off. And these are places that have gotten a lot of support from big name allies like the United States and the Soviet Union. So Cambodia, you know, with that complex in mind, you have this sense of like, okay, well, we're going to be in between, betwixt and in between these major Cold War uh, proxies. Uh, we have to be strong and we have to protect our independence, our autonomy. And Sihanouk, uh, initially the king, uh, he will abdicate uh, in 55 and become a prince and, and just run as a, a citizen uh, to become the head of state of Cambodia, which he wins overwhelmingly. Uh, he remains throughout his entire life strictly 
uh, neutral. And, and Nick Tarling has called this a policy of neutrality, where he's not going to overcommit to U.S. support in U.S. aid or Soviet support in Soviet aid. And it's during this time where he fosters a really important friendship, personal friendship with Joe and Lai. And this begins at the Afro-Asia Conference. And then Julio Heldris has written about that extensively in his, his work. And his, I just got a copy of his book from the Queen Mother Library and would recommend everybody check it out. And it's during this time where there's an interest in China, right? China is Cambodia's rear guard. China is the number one friend of Cambodia. And this gets people interested in China. You know, the people are going to China. There's the foundation of a, a, a China-Cambodia Friendship Association, as well as a Khmer-Chinese Friendship Association, that one, the latter based in Phnom Penh, which is all about cultural diplomatic exchange. Uh, of course, by the 60s, though, it evolves into an overtly Maoist organization, and people start to become more radicalized. They're reading the, the radical texts of the Cultural Revolution. Many are actually going to China and witnessing firsthand what's going on on these very highly curated and uh, highly restrictive trips. And uh, it is through that that there's this, you know, kind of this belief that, okay, we can bring this here. So the Maoism that's getting exported actively to Cambodia is, is twofold. And it's a roundabout way of getting to answering the question. Uh, the first part is through this effort to try and again, you know, foster these culturally diplomatic relations. China wants Cambodia to support it for the seat in the United Nations, but it also needs an ally in the region for Cold War politics reasons, right? Uh, betwixt the Bosco-backed Hanoi and the American-backed Bangkok. Uh, but on top of that, there's the effort to do grassroots Maoist uh, activism, which is through the uh, official uh, uh, support and dissemination of, of cultural revolution propaganda through uh, the newspaper that I look at in chapter two, Mianhua Rebao, Sino-Khmer Daily, and uh, through various efforts by uh, Del Chabu or Central Investigation Agents, uh, Central Investigation Department agents to go and kind of stir up and gin up anti-imperialist fervor. And when there's anti-imperialist fervor going on, people are not going to support the, the United States and certainly in the Sino-Soviet split, not going to support the Soviet Union. So who does that leave you for supporting? China. So it, it, it's kind of that two-pronged attack that allows China to enter that uh, the minds of that kind of radical zeitgeist that's emerging in the rap, in the kind of the radical urban culture of Phnom Penh. Perfect. And as you're talking about that sort of two-pronged attack, that also though um, answers quite that answers at least one of the questions that is sort of posed in Chapter Three: the origins of Cambodia's Maoist vision, where you're keeping your focus on Cambodia, but looking at sort of would-be Cambodian revolutionary intellectuals. And here you're looking at these future revolutionaries when they are students in Paris. Um, and you're focusing in particular on the intellectual adaptation of Maoism. And so one of the examples actually that you look at here is um, Pol Pot's handwritten 1952 article, <laughs> Monarchy of Democracy, which is a fascinating sort of um, analysis of that text. Um, and one of the things that this that this chapter looks at then is the leap from progressive student to card carrying communist. And you say that this was by no means a guarantee. And you highlight a number of different factors that enabled this transition. And I know you've talked about some of them already. And you, as you were just talking about that two prong attack goes a long way towards explaining it, as does some of the things we've already touched on, you know, the, the reading groups, the networking, the different um, friendship societies. But is there anything we've missed? Anything else that you want? to sort of touch on here as an explanation for this turn to Maoism before we move on to some of the later chapters? Well, that's a great question. The, the, 
so so Maoism was not in, initially, you know, the, these students, these um, what you know, future founders of the Communist Party, <laughs> Jaya, they they didn't begin as particularly political figures. Uh, many of them, when they boarded the ship uh, to take them to Paris. Uh, or, or Marseille, and then then, then uh, the trains to Paris uh, were largely apolitical. Or if they had a political stance, it was against the French, uh, though they couldn't say so openly because that was the benefactor for their bursaries. Uh, but when they land in Paris, they're kind of arriving at a time when there's a lot of uh, you know fascinating kind of coterie of ideas. And and radical thoughts, uh, you know, people are eventually initially kind of really fascinated with uh, establishing a true democracy in Cambodia. You know, as as the 1950s, the early 1950s begin, there's this enthusiasm and, and excitement for the end of French colonial rule in Indochina, and there's uh, certainly some excitement about Cambodia becoming a democracy rather than uh, just a monarchy in the region. With, excuse me. <coughs> A monarchy in the region that that has an absolute uh, leader and an absolute system. So I think that that initial excitement about democracy hits a wall with Sihanouk, who, because of his support from the French, is less keen to make concessions towards a, a more uh, earnest democracy. As Cambodia, in, you know, 1952 is making its transition towards an independent country. And what happens is, is his heavy-handed politics, you know, whether it's dissolving the National Assembly or interfering with the electoral process, alienates many of these Paris-based intellectuals who were bright-eyed yeah. uh, and, and very optimistic about democracy occurring and, and finding realization in Cambodia, in an independent Cambodia. So they start to realize that they're not going to be able to effectuate the type of change they envisioned from privileged privileged positions in Paris, and they need something that's more organizational and more practice-oriented. So some of them remain very much uh, a strict adherence to the democratic process and even a constitutional monarchy. You can think of people like a Fanboy, uh, Fanboy uh, not Fanboy Joe, sorry, Fan Chu Chin in, in Vietnam as an example. Uh, but among the people I look at, they turn to Marxism. They start reading Marx's works. They start reading Stalin and Lenin's works, and of course Mao's works. Uh, people like Hu Yun, uh, Kyo Samphan, Yang Sari, uh, and Paul Pot become card-carrying members of the Communist Party of France, uh, the Parti Communiste Français. Uh, and it's in their time as, as members of the French Communist Party that they join these language groups, which are reading groups, engage with these materials, start to learn about the importance of clandestinity, uh, importance of organization, the importance of strong personalities. In particular, they're, they're drawn to the oozing charisma of Maurice Thérèse, who is the then leader of the, uh, the the French Communist Party. And some of them decide, well, you know what, stuff this degree, I'm going to go back and be a revolutionary. And this is where you have a Paul Pot and Yang Sadi leaving without completed degrees. Hu Yun and Hu Nin remain very fascinated with, with communism, uh, remain very much interested in becoming communists, uh, but realize, along with Kyosampan, that the only way they're going to actually be able to do this is if they take the political route. And that means working with Sihanouk, 
trying to you know use a block within strategy, right? Join his government, change the system from within. So they all finish their advanced degrees, return to Cambodia, become very, very successful politicians, uh, rise through the ranks. Some of them are extremely popular. And these are the guys who will come up with ideas that will really try and that will really challenge Sihanouk. And he will target many of them in the 1960s because of their rising popularity, their commitment to peasant uh, emancipation and, and, and the uh, improved so, uh, social living standards. And he's, you know, really, really kind of butts heads with them because he's maintaining that neutrality, right? And here are these left-minded, popular, charismatic uh, um, intellectuals who are part of his National Assembly uh, who are directly challenging him and challenging his neutrality. And, and in the 1960s, that will result in him kind of threatening them uh, openly and uh, directly. Uh, and this will, of course, be the final push for them to, to, to run and join the, um, those who left early in the 1950s, your Pol Pot's, your young Saris, uh, in the countryside. And they will form what will become the party center of the Communist Party of Kampuchea. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned a little bit earlier, it will not um, end particularly well for them, but we're, we're sort of still meeting them as students here. And I was reminded as you were talking about the sort of the bright, you know, wide-eyed intellectuals. I think you talk in this chapter in particular about the real profound influence of French thought and the sort of appeal of Rousseau in particular, at least in the beginning before, as you, as you um, touch on and just outlined there so beautifully, they sort of, you know, begin participating in Marxist reading groups and, and it all becomes a little bit more revolutionary. Um, but I wanted to just flag Rousseau because I love that in this chapter, um, how that initially appeals greatly and then not so much. Um, and as we move then to sort of chapter four, we touch on this chapter focuses in particular on two figures you've mentioned a few times already, um, Huyon and Hunim. And in particular, this chapter looks at their economic their economics dissertations. And you, you point out that their dissertations, these dissertations as a pair represent foundational national texts of Maoist Cambodia in their discussion of myriad problems in the rural sector and use of Maoist vocabulary, syntax, and socioeconomic analyses. And this is a really detailed chapter focusing as it does largely on these two dissertations. Um, but is there anything in particular, or I, I, I realize it's tricky because there are two of them, <laughs> but is there anything that you want to particularly highlight about one or both of these um, pieces of work, something, a thought, um, an understanding, or something that's being worked through as it relates to Maoism that will sort of um, play out in later chapters? Any, anything that we should sort of know or uh, highlight here about these dissertations? Well, certainly, I, I, there used to be three, because Kyu Sampan oh. wrote an economics dissertation as well. Uh, he was the, the second, he was the sandwich uh, filling, uh, the meat in the sandwich for that. Hu Yun finished his in 55, Kyu Sampan in 1959, and then Hu Nim in 1965 in uh, Phnom Penh. He, he finished his, uh, his, his studies in Paris to become a customs officer, uh, did a bit of law school, and then finished his degree at the uh, Université Royale Khmer, what is now the Royal University of Phnom Penh. Uh, so I, I removed the Kusampan bits because, as I mentioned in the intro, his work is largely derivative of Huyun's. And Hunim's is, I left that one in because he's looking at a more recent data. And uh, his work is, I think, a much more uh, current and, and more kind of comprehensive 
analysis. He also looks at China, North Korea, and North Vietnam as case studies, which you do not, do not get in Hu Yun's piece. Uh, you get praise for those uh, places, but not to the extent that you get with Hu Yun. So what I think is important about these particular pieces is, is, is as I, I do in this, is that you know, uh, Hu Yun and Hu Nim are using language that is directly plucked from the pages of Mao. Uh, in the case of Hu Nim, he even references these materials. Uh, Hu Yun is, is a little bit less uh, willing to do so, partly because in the 19, in 1955, uh, you know, under the watchful eye of the French Sûreté, uh, the, the kind of the French secret police, uh, and of course, uh, Sihanouk, uh, he was very, very wary to lose his scholarship, whereas Hunim can be a little bit more open. He's back in Cambodia. It's 1965. China-Cambodia relations are good at the time. He doesn't have to worry about uh, that happening. Uh, what's important to know about these two pieces is that the reason why they're foundational national texts is because these, these analyses of class difference, rural exploitation, uh, kind of the, the, the systematic, uh, systematic exploitation of, of the rural sector to serve consumer interests in the cities, which you know, are overwhelmingly foreign in nature, highlight just, you know, again, the lens through which these intellectuals interpret Cambodia's cyclical dependency. And they're seeking to, to address uh, what needs to be done to reverse these trends. And they see that as Mao did by starting in the countryside. Now, this doesn't mean that the, and as many people have incorrectly ascribed to Mao, that they're advocating for the peasants to lead the revolution or even be the vanguard. There's nowhere in those pages where you find it, just as you don't find it in the pages of Mao's writings. But they say that the peasants are the majority population of this country and their continued oppression and exploitation, their continued um, kind of impoverishment will mean that Cambodia never moves forward. It will just enter the world market as another country that will be the byproduct of, uh, of, of systematic exploitation by foreign commercial interests. And that isn't going to make the country any better. So to fix the cycle of dependency, they need to invest in the countryside, invest in the labor force in the countryside to end the stark urban rural divide. And Hu Yun says that this needs to be done through mutual aid teams so that peasants, you know, rural workers, farmers, et cetera, can share their tools, can share their resources, and more people can benefit and lift themselves from poverty collectively. And the result will be better for everyone. Uh, Hu Nim goes even further and says, well, we need to end the fragmentation and concentration of lands in smaller hands through a robust and rigorous land redistribution network that is akin to what you see in the case studies of, of North Vietnam, North Korea, and China. And he has a lot of nice things to say about what they've done there. And he also proposes, like Hu Yun, uh, a mutual aid teams of, of a different type. He calls it something else, but they are, for all intents and purposes, modeled after what happened in the Soviet Union uh, with their mutual aid teams. And then, of course, what happened in, in China with their kind of the people's communes, so to speak. Uh, so I think that's the vision they have is, is to, to place kind of that power of, of, of those productive forces back in the hands of the peasants so they could have a better social living standard and uh, could you know, no longer be uh, in this, this system of increasing poverty. And that they'll see that as the kind of the starting point towards Cambodia removing itself from its positionality as a poor exploited country that has been hastily inserted into the global market uh, because of you know, the nature of, of the French leaving and, and yet all those companies remained, right? 
so I think that's that's the what I was really trying to eschew with this is other than just make those kind of connections between Mao's rural investigations for Huyun or Mao's works uh, during the Cultural Revolution, some of his speeches and some of his ideas with what Hunim's talking about is to kind of say what they're doing, what they see as the vision for Maoist Cambodia or the vision of for Cambodia uh, with their adaptations, their intellectual adaptations of Maoism and you know, to kind of get an idea of what that is so that when we get to the last chapter, we see where it all went wrong. Perfect, thank you. And as you as you sort of laid out there, um, the chapter four sort of gives the, the idea, the theories, the, the plans, and then chapter five, it's not quite all going wrong yet, but chapter five then looks at how Pol Pot, um, Huyon and Hunim put Maoism into practice. And importantly here, going back to Maoism is not a monolith um, and interpretations of Maoism are not a monolith. This chapter shows how practical adaptation was different between these different um, thinkers. So, so for um, Huyon and Hunim, they were bureaucratic Maoists and Pol Pot faith Maoists. And this of course then leads to the question of the chapter as a whole, how did French educated Cambodian elites with fairly limited rural connections <laughs> at the time break from Hanoi and launch a nationwide insurgency? So this chapter looks at how the party leaders really made Maoism speak to the peasants and speak to, to people as it were. Um, but thinking of something you mentioned right at the beginning, actually, of our conversation, um, you, you mentioned, you sort of uh, mentioned Buddhism, and this is something that comes up in this chapter. So you look at, one of the things you look at is how existing frames of knowledge, particularly Buddhism, were used and put to communist or Maoist in particular ends. And in thinking about how they're, how these party leaders are translating Maoism, um, how, how does Buddhism come into this? Is, are there any examples that you, you would um, uh, touch on or that spring to mind with how Buddhism is, is particularly harnessed to the Maoist cause? It's a fantastic question, Sarah. Thank you. The, so you mentioned earlier uh, monarchy or democracy, Rientibeteiru, uh, uh, mm -hmm. um, Pol Pot's first political writing, one that he signs as Khmer Daim or original Khmer, uh, you know, one of many people use that pseudonym. But this piece is, is remarkable, not because it was incredibly difficult to translate uh, and even read, uh, because it was handwritten in Cambodian, there was no Khmer typewriter at the time. And on top of that, it was the photocopy of a photocopy. So it was in just absolutely dreadful condition. Uh, but what's remarkable about this piece is that the frame of knowledge of all Cambodian students in this circle is still Buddhism. Buddhism is still part of the lens through which they interpret the world. It's still important to them at this stage. And indeed, uh, Salatza, the, the future Pol Pot, will in fact reference Buddhism unequivocally and frequently in this handwritten piece because he sees the Buddha himself as this paragon of democracy and that, that Cambodia has that within its, its political culture and within its religious culture, a more democratic kind of, uh, like the democracy should find root there. there there's no reason why uh, Cambodia couldn't be feckin' grounds for democracy's flourishing. And he mentions other like uh, monarchs, like uh, 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 trying to remember in particular, uh, a print, there was a, a particular prince uh, who he said was kind of like a, almost like a father of democracy. Uh, the name escapes me, you'll have to forgive me. But but that's just one piece. And it's not a, it's not a Maoist piece. He doesn't, you know, he mentions the, 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 the Chinese revolution in 1911. 
but he, he it's not a mouse piece, but it does show the ways in which Buddhism is part of the conversation. And you don't see that in the economics dissertations. You don't. They don't mention Buddhism. It's not something that comes up. But when they become politicians, when they're actually working in constituencies, listening to the peasants that they propounded and spoke so much about and, and made the centerpiece of their campaigns and their dissertations, no less, they realize that Buddhism is it, it is it is it is rural society in Cambodia, right? That for years before the French and even during the French period, the you know the the temples, the pagodas, were the schools, were the centers of every village. So in recognizing that, they know that the language they speak must speak to the needs and wants and the worldviews of the people that they're trying to recruit. And in the 1960s, before the the, the revolution against Sihanouk and then Lanol begins. Uh, they don't have to do this this much. They, they can just, you know, work on complaints commissions, uh, address grievances, you know, be mouthpieces for their constituents uh, in the National Assembly. But after 1967 or in 1967, where these leftist ministers have become particularly vocal and even, you know, super charismatic and beloved by, by Cambodians of, of, across the nation, Sihanouk has to crack down on that. He threatens them with their lives. They flee to the countryside. They be, then become the public face of the Khmer Rouge, of the Communist Party of Kampuchea. Uh, so these popular ministers who become the three ghosts because everyone thinks that they're dead, yeah. they reemerge during the late 60s and early 70s. And it is through the organizations kind of like, here's the public face, but we're an organization, there's no one leader. Uh, the organization loves you like a family. The organization is here to help you. The organization, the Anka, is going to liberate you from your suffering. The Anka will, you know, kind of, uh, it'll do everything you need it to do and none of the bad stuff you uh, that you hate. It's through, it's through that, that period where, you know, you have a public face of these figures who are going and giving speeches and are able to use their their grandeur and their renown to bring people in, that they're also, the party is using propaganda, right? They're recruiting monks into the party to resist uh, Lan Nol. And they're even welcoming Sihanouk back in 73 and saying, look, Sihanouk, we were against you for a period of time, but now that the US backed, the CIA backed Lan Nol regime is in, we need you. And that's where the Buddhism comes in because Sihanouk is himself, you know, the Devaraja, right? This kind of charismatic, uh, God King, right? He, he holds a kind of a semi-divine status as all Cambodian monarchs do. And it's when he joins and voices his support for the Communist Party of Kampuchea on, you know, in addition to the recruitment of monks who they turn on rather early, and in addition to the party's slogans, which Henri Lecoq has looked at extensively and detailed extensively in his book, uh, Paul Potts' Little Red Book, The Sayings of Anka, that they're able to use Buddhism and marshal Buddhism and marshal the importance of the Devaraj, the importance of the God King and Sihanouk to their advantage, as peasants will then flock even more to the party uh, than before, as they move from their liberated areas where they had been speaking in places like Ratanakiri and, and in the you know, kind of the northwestern parts of the country, as they're starting to bring in new recruits who weren't there in the base areas with them, uh, having the public face of these popular politicians, having the public face of Sihanouk, having slogans and references and allusions to Buddhism is, is something they can use to make them more familiar and more approachable. And it's, you know, you can stand on a soapbox and talk about dialectical materialism until the cows come home, but how do you make <laughs> How do you make the rural peasants care about this, 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 this promise you're selling, this big project you're selling them? And you have to find those local frames of reference uh, that, that, you know, 
not only address grievances at the local, at, you know, at the at the grassroots, but also frame these ideas in a language people understand. And they're not the only ones to do it in the region. You see it with the Patadlao who do this uh, through the politicization of the Buddhist Sangha or the Buddhist community in Laos. And you, you see it arguably also with the Vietnamese communists who, who draw on Confucianism as, as a way to, to try and bring people into the party who'd be otherwise not so keen on, on the, the, the Marxism of the party's uh, uh, language. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The language of dialectical materialism is not, <laughs> might not bring everyone into the fold. Um, as, as I said, it is another really rich chapter um, in exploring, you know, as you just touched on just one piece of it. Um, there's so much more here. Um, but of course, we need to get to chapter six. And this is, as we've, as you've sort of touched on, this is sort of where it all, I suppose, begins to go wrong. Um, this is the chapter that explores the mechanisms of the CPK and power. Um, and there is much that happens in this chapter. You talk about the emptying of the cities, um, identification of enemies, the super great leap forward, all the different sort of policies and programs and, and you know, radical visions of economic re reconfiguration that go on and they all fail spectacularly. Um, but there's one thing here that I thought was particularly interesting, um, which is um, Pol Pot's rejection of Maoism in implementation. Um, and that really comes through here as we sort of see, you know, uh, the, the rejection of Maoism and, and moving on to sort of new and other policies. Um, but you point out actually that Pol Pot rejecting Maoism is itself very Maoist, which I found really fascinating. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this in particular. Is there sort of an example of Pol Pot's rejection of Maoism that, that really stands out to you to highlight to listeners in, in its, you know, the, the, the Maoist essence of the rejection itself? Well, it's a fascinating question, Sarah, and I, I thank you so much for asking this one. Uh, you know, it's, it's, one thing that, you know, I've talked about this extensively, uh, I did a, a, you know, caught up recently uh, with, with Andrew Murtha, who's, whose work has been such a, a huge influence on mine, and, and he's just such a fantastic and, and generous scholar with his time, uh, is, is that, you know, the one thing that we as scholars of China-Cambodia relations and scholars of, 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 of you know, the, the Khmer Rouge, the Communist Party of Kampuchea, must always remember is that this party, especially by 1975, regarded its revolution as without equal in the world, that they were the, going to, to bring socialism to new heights. And this entailed the rejection of all influences that preceded them. Now, naturally, they don't do this in, 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 in word. They just do this kind of in deed. So in word, specifically the September 1977 speech where the party announces itself as a Marxist-Leninist party that is drawn from the Chinese revolutionary experience and yada, yada, yada. You know, aside from that, you don't really have them saying that they, you know, borrow from anyone, right? There, there are times where Paul Pot says our revolution uh, has borrowed from no one. We we draw from our own experiences, and that's in itself very Maoist to say that, right? We have we have applied the universal theory of Marxism Leninism to the concrete realities of of our historical situation, and and you know that that's all kind of boilerplate textbook Maoism, even in in saying that they, you know, again are sui generis. The rejection of Maoism that I see here is not just the rhetorical denial of those influences or even the practical denial of those influences. It is the effort by the CPK to outdo all of those programs that, you know, of course, they owe 
rhetorically and uh, in in terms of like you know and spiritually, they're they're they owe to uh, to China, right? There's even the super great leap forward, which they even called the super great leap forward, which is neither super nor great or a leap forward. Um, and it's it, it, it's 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 fascinating to see that right there's there's never really a considered effort to develop a small or heavy industry uh they almost completely abandoned it in in favor of uh agricultural collectivization and and year-round rice cultivation in in historically poor rice cultivation regions uh cambodian soil is, as ben kiernan has pointed out is not particularly great and that there are two really really good like reliable rice growing seasons so year-round rice growing is not a smart idea uh, so, and yet they tried to do that. Um, so the rejection of Maoism is they move away from uh, kind of analyzing closely these concrete realities and adapting accordingly. Uh, it is also the effort by the party to systematically eradicate people based on language, uh, intelligence, ethnicity, etc. Now, this isn't to say that uh, you know the CPK or the the, the communist the Chinese Communist Party didn't attack intellectuals. We know that it did. Hundred Flowers campaign, anti-rightist campaign, uh, cultural revolution. Um, but and, and of course there were ethnic policies in the CCP as well, right? The resettlement, uh, as Felix Bemhar has shown, the resettlement of Han Chinese in the Northwest Frontier during the fifties and sixties. There were policies there put in place that uh, that the CCP has to own up to in terms of its anti-intellectual uh, uh, programs and its uh, policies towards uh, ethnic minorities and assimilation. But eradication is not one of them. And what you get with the CPK is this internal kind of division. Uh, I, I made the, in an earlier draft of this uh, book, I had made a comparison uh, between uh, the falling out of, of that central committee, that collective leadership of, of Huyun, Hunim, uh, Kusampan, Pol Pot, Young Sadi, et cetera. I had made comparisons of that falling out with the Lushan conference, where uh, Pang Dehuai kind of, uh, you know, his criticism of Mao ultimately led to. Uh, you know, the, this kind of this division, this split, where you were either fully, fully on the Mao bandwagon or you weren't. And if you weren't, then you were out, you were purged. Hmm. So, uh, of course, the, it's not, it's an imperfect connection. That's why it didn't survive to the final draft. But you see that kind of there as there's a move from looking at, at the Maoist spirit of, 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 of socioeconomic analysis, understanding and appreciating uh, the situation on the ground as it is. Uh, and then kind of applying through, you know, applying through that practice, uh, you know, and learning through that practice, the mistakes you made to then go back to the drawing board and, and revise those, that's thrown to the wayside to doubling down and digging your heels in and blaming enemies, uh, for, uh, real and imagined, in this case, mostly imagined, for derailing the revolution. So Pol Pot, of course, will blame the Vietnamese. Uh, the Pol Pot regime will blame uh, the, the, the Muslim chams, they'll blame Buddhist monks, as Ian Harris's books have shown, uh, you know, 100,000 plus um, Buddhist monks who were, of course, you know, an important part of the movement in general. Uh, they'll also attack ethnic Thai uh, and they'll attack intellectuals, anybody who has any knowledge of foreign languages, any, any discernible skills, they'll even attack their own military. And they'll invade Vietnam as part of this kind of jingoistic harebrained scheme to try and reclaim lost territories. Kampuche uh, Krom or Southern Cambodia, which was of course for a long time during the Khmer Empire years, uh, you know, included as far as Ho Chi Minh City. So, so this is just all very different from, from uh, uh, Maoism as, you know, as exported and, and as practiced in China. 
Um, that isn't to say that it isn't Maoism, right? So the rejection of Maoism is still Maoism, right? Mao rejected the Soviet model of bureaucratic centralism. He rejected um, Stalin, some of Stalin's ideas and practices in creating the Chinese road to socialism, which I talk about in chapter two. And that doesn't make what he's doing heterodox to Marxism-Leninism, but rather it makes it a creative adaptation. And that creative adaptation spirit, that spirit of creative adaptation is what makes Mao Zedong thought permeate throughout the globe so easily and effectively. So I'd say that that's, that's how I would explain the rejection of, of Maoism by the Pol Pot regime and what then becomes the natural conclusion of any Maoist movement or any Maoist ideology when it is exported and indigenized, uh, the creation of a local version of it, which becomes Pol Potism. And that is, of course, that version, that Cambodian Maoism has uh, those aspects of genocide in it, that where it's, we have to eliminate all enemies um, because they're coming to get us and swallow us up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And with, I mean, you set us up so beautifully there in sort of that this, this part of the book, we, we leave it, um, we leave the book and, and we see sort of how Maoism has gone right from in China in the 1950s all the way to now this sort of new, as you say, sort of creative adaptation, this new um, version of Maoism that, that, that in being new departs from Maoism itself. It's a, it's a perfect place to sort of end it as we have come, of course, to the end of your book. <laughs> and congratulations with this project. I mean, there's so much here in this book, some of which we had a chance to talk about, some of which, of course, we didn't. I'm, I'm very glad I mentioned the Pol Pot manuscript in particular, by the way, <laughs> seeing as you, as you um, touched on, um, it was one that, that took up a lot of your time. Um, but now that we have come, now that this book is finished and we've come to the end of our conversation about it, all that is left is the final question, which is traditional to the podcast. Um, what are you working on now? What is inspiring you at the moment? Well, thank you for this question. I, you know, any chance to talk about the research I was just doing in Phnom Penh for the last <laughs> month. And it's, it's been such a rewarding process. Again, challenging as always, but my next project is a combination of two things. And it might end up becoming two books. But it has been 51 years since we had a book uh, on the overseas Chinese in Cambodia, or specifically the Chinese communities in Cambodia. William Wilmot's 1967, The Chinese in Cambodia and the Political Structure of the Chinese in Cambodia in 1971. So I think it's high time that we have an update on that. But the reason why I'm not just going to do an extensive study on the Chinese communities in Cambodia is that I'm fascinated with overseas intelligence work, specifically by the Diao Chabu, the Central Investigation Department. And I've actually written an article about one agent in the field named Vita Zhou. His uh, Chinese name was uh, Zhou Degao. And uh, it's actually available for free online. It's called Peasant Worker Communist Spy. And just kind of in digging into his life and times, he wrote a memoir that came out a, a decade ago about his time working for the Diao Chabu. I, you know, you find out that he was actually a prolific editor and translator. He was the uh, one of the senior editors of Mianhua Rebao, the Sino-Khmer Daily, the official propaganda outlet of the PRC embassy in Phnom Penh. And you know, just kind of digging into his life and times and all the networks he was a part of, I just kind of found myself really interested in the Chinese communities in Cambodia and 
how they were radicalized in the 1960 in the 1960s, radicalized one way or another, whether it's uh, towards supporting Sihanouk, against Sihanouk in favor of the communists, or, or even to supporting the Guomindang, uh, the ma maintaining uh, Taiwan, the Republic of China, uh, maintaining its seat in the United Nations. So there's so many fascinating uh, avenues to go down on this. We'll see how it goes. Uh, finding a publisher is, is priority number number one, or, or maybe priority number two. Priority number one is actually writing the book. Uh, but just kind of in, in uncovering these, these never before uh, researched um, Chinese language newspapers like uh, Meijiang Ribao or, or Mekong Daily uh, in conjunction with, with Mianhua Ribao and in conjunction with all of these French and uh, Khmer language uh, newspapers at the time. I'm looking at La Nouvelle des Peches, which was a leftist newspaper in the 60s. Uh, you know, just kind of looking at how these newspapers uh, interacted with and fomented radical uh, kind of political political culture, uh, radical enthusiasm in Cambodia. Uh, I think that could be a fascinating study that would fill a lot of gaps that have been hitherto uh, uh, unaddressed in the last 51 years of scholarship on not only the studies of the Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia, but in terms of just looking at Cambodian history in the 20th century. Absolutely, and it sounds like you have a lot of great and fascinating material to work with. So my very best of you know luck for with that project, whether it becomes one book or two or many more, um, I look forward to hearing or reading about it um, in the future. But for now, um, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this book today. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure.